0: for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde reflects on the Lawrence Fox ruling and asks, what now for the sad clown of the culture war circus? Hugh Hefner's wife, Crystal, on mind games in the Playboy Mansion, and the difference between memory loss and dementia, and how to protect your brain from both. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, a High Court ruling marks the climax of actor and right-wing political activist Lawrence Fox's comic unravelling. Now let's focus on the organ grinder, not the monkey, says Marina Hyde. Read by Colleen Prendergast.
2: Did some randos calling him a racist on the platform formerly known as Twitter cost Lawrence Fox his acting career? No, suggests a judgement from the High Court, where a judge also found the actor-turned-thought-leader to have defamed said randos by calling them paedophiles. You can't just call any old person a paedophile, apparently, unless you're the owner of Twitter slash X, of course, and you get sued in the US as opposed to the UK, like Elon Musk did by that Thai cave rescue diver a few years back appearing on the steps outside a Los Angeles courtroom following his favourable verdict, Musk declared, My faith in humanity is restored. These were not the words of Lawrence Fox on Monday. Instead, the Reclaim party leader and Hunter Biden biopic star offered a nine-minute monologue outside the High Court that had a distinctly after-lunch feel to it. What we've got, after several million quid, is a nothing burger, elucidated Fox. Lawrence was wearing glasses with transition lenses, which, and, like him, I'm just making a rhetorical point here, always look like a come-and-get-me plea to the Beast Wing at HMP Full Sutton. He was accompanied by his girlfriend, Liz Barker. Liz believes the moon landings were faked and has previously stated she doesn't buy the whole theory of human evolution from apes. No, I think we come from another race. A supposed free speech nut suing for libel, not his first rodeo, Lawrence brought his counterclaim on the basis that I felt that one of the most important things I had in this world was my good name. Mm Mm-hmm. I can't help feeling that that ship had not just already sailed, but been sunk in the Solent around 300 years before the development of the electric light bulb. If suitable donors emerge, more on that later, Lawrence's good name might one day be raised off the ocean floor, dragged in fragments to Portsmouth and painstakingly restored as a time capsule of early 21st century absurdity. Do recall, this entire case began with a supermarket tweeting about Black History Month. Nevertheless, the trial itself arguably added to the gaiety of the nation, as Lawrence discoursed on the discourse and claimed to have been offered a role in the Batman before his career was derailed. That remains unverified, though I could definitely see him playing one of the guys who kill Bruce Wayne's parents. As for Fox's claim that he had been approached for a part in Succession, clearly it's a huge honour for a show like Succession to find itself woven into Lawrence's spellbinding before story. Even so, it must be said, the idea he was up for a part in it was certainly eye-catching news, most particularly to those behind Succession. No one had any memory of such a thing. Was it remotely possible that at some point he had appeared on a British casting assistant's long list? It'd have to have been a very long list, seems to be the polite answer. We definitely talked about him a lot in the writer's room, one writer reflects, just not in connection with a part. Yet, despite all his humiliations and defeats, Lawrence Fox's essential ridiculousness and poignantly insatiable need for attention confine him to the comic spectrum as opposed to the tragic. He is more of a Malvolio than a Macbeth. Shortly after his fateful appearance on Question Time, Lawrence boasted to the Sunday Times of having been the only person to have turned up for an appearance on QT with guitars and shit. Even now, I am unable to type that without laughing. Everything he has done since that moment feels like a pose, a way for a middling supporting actor to get four-time Oscar-winner attention. There's a reason toddler psychologists call behaviour like this acting out. The second Lawrence feels he'd get more attention slash cash for the apology tour or expose of the hard right, you might expect him to execute a 180 and release at least two bluegrass albums about his journey. Working titles, Redemption Creek and Question Time? Speaking of questions, however, let us turn to the received wisdom that Fox is permanently broke. In fact, some interested parties profess surprise at the implication that he struggles financially after the drying up of acting offers when, in fact, Lawrence benefits from huge sums of money every year, courtesy of Jeremy Hosking. Having been the third biggest Brexit donor, Hosking is the mega-rich investor who funds Reclaim and has given it millions, apparently indifferent to the fact he has barely a vote to show for it. Hosking's Brexit crusade has pivoted to the culture wars and anti-net-zero agenda. To give you a sense of just how deep his pockets are, the MP, Andrew Bridgen, was last year belatedly forced to declare that Husking had stumped up £4,470,576.42 in interest-free loans to fund a doomed legal action against Bridgen's brother for control of the family potato farm. Bridgen was relieved of the Tory whip for comparing the Covid vaccine to the Holocaust, then briefly joined Reclaim, but is now back as an independent. Husking is still donating to his campaign to retain his seat. Whatever is going on here, it seems pretty clear that Lawrence Fox is just one of the idiot faces of it. Who is this backroom man, lavishly funding one dickhead's extended breakdown as part of a campaign to buy his way to political and cultural influence at the same time as bleating publicly about the state of our democracy Why should Hosking prefer to lead from behind while his paid fool or fools create busywork or diversions? The last recorded accounts for the Reclaim Party cover the period until November 2021. Their up-to-date figures are long overdue, as, perhaps, is our focus on the organ grinder rather than the monkey.
0: That was... Lawrence Fox has lost his good name. What now for the sad clown of the culture war circus? By Marina Hyde, read by Colleen Prendergast. Next, Crystal Hefner was only 26 when she married the infamous Hugh Hefner, who was then 86. Now, seven years after his death, she has written a tell-all book. She sits down with Eva Wiseman to reveal the tawdry truths and toxic power plays Behind the Glamour of Living in His Playboy Mansion, read by Sue Ann Braun.
3: There was this bathroom in the Playboy Mansion, just off Hugh Hefner's bedroom, that was clad in black marble, with a black marble tub, black toilet, and heavy curtains to shut out the light. The way Crystal Hefner, nay Harris, describes it, this room sounds like a manifestation of the darkest part of Hefner's mind. When she moved into the mansion as one of his three live-in girlfriends, she became his third wife in 2012, when she was 26 and he was 86. She'd work out which nights he expected sex, because, instead of his regular dinner of tin chicken noodle soup, crackers and cream cheese, he'd order a BLT. He took so much Viagra, it made him deaf. Afterwards, the girlfriends and any other blonde guests half had invited up from the party would shower off the baby oil he insisted they use for lube, despite their recurring infections, and Crystal would watch the two lovebirds that lived in a cage in the corner. They were beautiful, these birds, tiny and green and famously loyal. The problem was, writes Crystal in her memoir, Only Say Good Things, they kept dying. The staff would whisk away each little corpse and replace it with another the following day, But neither Hefner nor the maid seemed curious about what was wrong. Were they passing on infections, Crystal wondered? A bacteria buildup in the famous grotto pools, after all, had caused an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Was it the lack of sunlight? One day she inspected the cage and realized the water bottle was broken. The birds had been dying of thirst this whole time, and the mansion staff just kept replacing them, bird after bird. Crystal moved into the mansion to replace Holly Madison, previously Hefner's number one girlfriend of three he had at the time. In 2008, after sending in her photograph, Crystal had been invited to one of his infamous playboy parties. She moved in soon after, quitting her psychology degree for a different kind of education. Once she went in, she writes, it was so hard to find a way out. Her book is named after a promise she made to Hefner. Does it suggest, I ask, that he knew you were unhappy? She breathes, contemplative, then slowly shakes her head. I honestly don't know. Now it seems like a threat. But I do remember someone asking him, what if these women are just after you for your money? And he said, well, as long as they're after me. Heff was on the extreme side of narcissism, so I truly believe that he thought everybody really wanted to be there, really enjoyed the sex, really enjoyed the old movies, loved literally everything he enjoyed. She chuckles lightly. It was his friend's country club. They came and got the free buffet and the staring at the girls and brought articles about him to him, and it was just the Heff show. For years, Crystal only said good things. She cared for him, she brushed away criticism, she built relationships with his four adult children. But now, six years after his death at 91, she's decided to talk about her life imprisoned in the Playboy Mansion, and in doing so, ask questions about abusive relationships, identity, and the impact of a libertarian culture Hefner helped usher in. This is not the first time one of Hefner's girlfriends has spoken out. In a 2022 documentary, Carissa Shannon, who was 18 when Crystal joined her and her twin sister in the mansion, said she had had an abortion at 19 because he refused to use condoms. Susie Kraybacher, who moved in at 18, said Hefner drugged and raped her. In Holly Madison's 2015 memoir, she wrote that at the depths of her despair, she contemplated drowning herself in his bathtub. The difference between their stories and Crystal's is partly in the timing. She has written this in the long shadow of hashtag MeToo, with all the politics and therapeutic reckonings that entails. Partly, it's that, as his wife, she had a particular, peculiar insight. And partly, it's that this is not a shocking tell-all, though there are revelations about sex and cash. It's a story about power, celebrity, and, in a mansion that looked grand from a distance, But inside was mildewing and falling apart, the dark truths that glamour can hide. When I first got there, it was like Willy Wonka, Crystal says. She's sitting at home in L.A., a nervous cough rising between thoughts. Because I came from a world where I didn't have much of anything. Born in Arizona, as a child she moved with her parents to the U.K., where they lived above a pub in Birmingham. When she was 12, her father died leaving her and her mother in a precarious situation in the U.S. And by the time she was invited to the Playboy party, she was struggling, both financially and mentally. The big celebrities at the time were people like Pamela Anderson, and I thought they looked so powerful. They were loved. They belonged. She wanted to be part of their world. When I moved into the mansion, I saw access and power and thought it was amazing. But then the walls started to close in on me. She pauses. I think broken women gravitate towards something like that. I still don't understand why. I'm going back to school to study more psychology. The girlfriends had to be home every evening for a 6 p.m. curfew, and none were allowed to work. Hafner would make them queue up to receive a weekly allowance, gas money. The whole mansion had this gross vibe to it. All the misogynistic actors that preyed on women, this was their meeting ground. And I just thought, that's how people are. And to be fair to her, many were. She was humiliated on chat shows, blackmailed, controlled. Even when Crystal led a season of the hit reality show, The Girls Next Door, which followed Hefner's girlfriends about their syntheticized daily lives, his production company received $400,000 an episode, and she received nothing. This was the last mainstream hurrah for the Playboy brand. Six seasons of telly that were equally banal and fascinating, with the girlfriends laughing and bickering and grooming themselves. It revealed how being a giggling, beautiful blonde was a full-time job, and the sight of geriatric Heth sliding in and out of scenes in his silk pajamas somehow made him seem even older. After Crystal had been promoted to main girlfriend, she felt important. But I quickly started thinking, how can this person really love me when they want four other people in the bedroom with us? She describes the weekly sex as if it was a degrading chore, unkeen to dwell on details. She says she's easily grossed out today. I did things that I wasn't comfortable with. I wasn't physically attracted to an 80-year-old man. I was just trying to get through it. And the other girls? Nobody liked each other but we'd just be there for Hef. Things changed for her when I realized I had no freedom. Everything was based on Hef's schedule and I never got a say, which, she coughs discreetly, is the opposite of the liberation and freedom that supposedly Playboy was meant to be about. We're going
0: to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment.
1: Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com ACAST.
0: Enjoying this podcast? Then we think you might love the audio long read. The podcast of The Guardian Long Read column, showcasing the best long-form journalism. From politics to psychology, food to technology, culture to crime, The Long Read offers great stories and big ideas. Subscribe to The Audio Long Read wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Crystal Hefner.
3: Playboy the brand had been in decline for years before Hefner's death, but in tributes, many praised his progressive politics. Jesse Jackson hailed him as a strong supporter of the civil rights movement, and Larry King called him a giant of free speech. But glad a nonprofit organization focused on LGBTQ advocacy and cultural change, put out a statement contending that Hefner was not a visionary, but a misogynist who built an empire on sexualizing women. And the thing that's interesting to me, says Crystal, looking back, is that hashtag MeToo happened a month after he died. So, like, right on time... Obituaries reignited a long debate about his cultural legacy as an architect of the sexual revolution. But, as Crystal explains, detailing the ways he'd pat her on the head and tell her to dye her roots, loudly compare the girlfriend's bodies, encourage plastic surgery, and play them off against each other, it became clear how little his grand project had to do with sex and how, in fact, it was all about power. She buried him in the plot he'd bought next to Marilyn Monroe. Another businessman bought the crypt above her, where he was buried, as per his wishes, face down. The symbolism was deafening. Hefner's early success had been down to Monroe. At 27, he launched Playboy with a naked photograph that he ran without her consent. Crystal shakes her head. I went along with everything for so long, but I was brainwashed, really. How was that all okay? I was in the middle of it for a decade, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, how did he get away with this? Another small cough. When he proposed, he offered the ring in a music box that played a song from The Little Mermaid. The story, Crystal writes, of the princess who so wants to belong to a different world that she trades her voice for a chance to walk around on human legs and find love. She signed a prenup, almost grateful, perhaps that this time the disparity was in black and white. Because the worst part about the transactional relationships she and her fellow girlfriends maintained was that they never made it explicit. You went into his orbit offering all of yourself, and you had no idea what you would get back. It might be gas money. It might be a playboy spread. Or fame. Power is insidious when it masks itself as generosity, she writes. And generosity is insidious when it's a camouflage for control. And both power and generosity are confusing when they gaslight you into believing they could be love. Newly engaged, Crystal felt like another object in this crowded house. A thing. One day, after being denied a cut of the $800,000 Hefner would receive for a wedding episode of their reality show, she decided to run away. But, crossing the driveway... She heard his voice boom over the mansion loudspeaker. Detain her! That's when a light went off, she says. I was like, okay, my feelings don't matter. She had become small, she writes. She left one more time, telling guards she was going out to buy tampons. She returned, chastened. A year later, age 25, and on the issue of Playboy with Crystal on the cover, Hefner plastered stickers saying, Runaway Bride. They married on New Year's Eve 2012, but soon after, she became sick, so sick she believed she'd die. Oh well, she thought, I've lived a lot of life. Eventually, she was diagnosed with Lyme disease, as well as breast implant illness, and then toxic mold exposure. The mansion was literally killing her. The sex stopped in 2014, and life became easier. She took out the implants stopped dyeing her hair, and transitioned to the role of carer, though not before going through his acres of shoeboxes containing explicit Polaroids of girls and shredding them. At the end of his life, she writes, Hefner fought suddenly to leave her something, his Playboy retirement fund and a house to live in. She started to think maybe he did love her in his way, and her feelings today? It's complicated. He seemed like a broken little boy, just trying to fill this void. And that's why he went on to try to overcompensate for a childhood that didn't really have any love. He was not good at love, Crystal says. He was good at getting women to surround him and creating the illusion that he was not alone. But in reality, he was very lonely. How could you tell? Watching movies, love stories, he would just cry and cry. How did she feel about him at the end? It was like Stockholm Syndrome, where you start having feelings for your captor. What made it harder with him was there was so much power and celebrity around, which definitely masks pain. When everyone's going along with something, it's hard to mentally pull away. I played mind games with myself to try to survive. She remembers her mother saying, Surely you have enough money now. Surely you can leave. And I said, I can't he needs me. I stayed until the very end. Her eyes flash briefly. I don't know why, but it makes me angry to think about. Why did I feel sorry for someone who messed me up mentally, but I don't know. She shrugs awkwardly. When, after Hefner's death, Crystal read that statement by Glad, she was shocked. Because, she writes, they had said the secret thing out loud. She waited for all hell to break loose in the mansion but the silence felt equally violent the party was over she thought of miners emerging from a collapsed cave the shock of freedom when you've been living so long in a weird and dark world how do you transition back to the light after she moved out she started hearing the stories of #me too i felt justified i knew something felt wrong but you get brainwashed like Oh, this is just how men are, and you just have to laugh it off. That's when the books started coming together. The Playboy Mansion and Hugh Hefner were fascinating to so many people. So I think those people deserve this story. I have nothing to hide. I have no one to protect. So that makes it a good time to let everyone know the truth. Rather than an attempt to undermine Hefner's legacy, she sees this book as a way to help other people who are in relationships that are confusing and maybe emotionally abusive, or with men with hard personalities. She didn't realize at the time, she says, that while the mind games might have helped her survive temporarily, it was all harming me psychologically. It's tough knowing your opinion doesn't matter, and you question your value, you don't feel worthy, because people lead you to believe that you'd be nothing without them. After she moved out, she found relationships challenging. I realized maybe being there affected me more than I thought. A friend suggested she talk to a matchmaker. They said, What are your hobbies? What do you like? She was speechless, because, like, what do I like? Who was she? She felt... blank. Recently, she started a podcast. I wanted to talk to other women who'd been part of that world or had similar experiences about how they've healed, but a lot of them haven't. So that's become difficult for me, realizing, wow, we're all still trying to figure it out. Since leaving the mansion, Crystal has come to despise celebrity. I think it's empty. I feel people chase it because they have some kind of void they're trying to fill. And then once they get it... They're angry because it doesn't fix anything. Another thing she's found uncomfortable is watching the rise of other toxic men, like Andrew Tate. It's so hard for me to see. Hef wasn't necessarily an aggressive person, but I think he chose women who are broken and easily manipulated. Today, she's appreciating her freedom. Or starting to. I still dream about the mansion, she says. In one dream, she's racing to get back before her curfew. In her most recent dream, she walked into Hefner's bedroom to find him in a crowd of naked women, and she had this feeling as if she was floating, like I'd risen above it, there down there and I'm up here, and I kind of feel sorry for him again. But then I'm like, oh, I can go. So I say goodbye, and I'm glad you're in your happy place, Hef. Not heaven, surely. No one would say Hef has gone to a better place. Ha! But I just have this feeling like... Like what? Like... We don't need to be here anymore. That was...
0: I had to play mind games to survive. Crystal Hefner on Life in the Playboy Mansion by Eva Wiseman. Read by Sue Ann Braun. Finally... The odd memory lapse is no big deal. So when should we start to worry about dementia? Here, Amy Fleming seeks the advice of experts and finds out their top tips for staying sharp. Read by Colleen Prendergast.
2: Isn't it sod's law? Just at the point in our lives when we start seriously considering our long-term health and mortality... Perhaps after witnessing older loved ones getting an illness such as dementia, our responsibilities are piled so high that we can feel as if we're losing our mental capacities already. The names of our favourite animals and humans become an interchangeable word soup. Our keys become increasingly elusive. Alerts must be set on all calendar entries. But how can we tell whether this frustrating flakiness Is a reflection of age-related cognitive decline, the early signs of our own impending dementia, or merely an overly taxing phase from which we will recover? Could it even just be normal forgetfulness? We're not robots, after all. It may be reassuring to hear from neurologist Richard Restack, 82, whose new book is How to Prevent Dementia, an Expert's Guide to Long-Term Brain Health. He says there might be a more everyday reason for memory lapse. All through life, stress causes a decrease in normal brain function. You have difficulty with memory, you can't come up with names. Of course, it's impossible to completely avoid stressful things, but one you can choose to swerve, he says, is worrying that you're getting Alzheimer's because of mild forgetfulness. There are examples of people coming out of shopping malls and being unable to remember where they parked the car. Well, that's just normal forgetting. A more worrying version of the story would be, Restak says, if you come out of the mall and you can't remember, did I drive here, did I take a bus, or did somebody drop me off? Restak is clearly still mentally sharp. As well as writing books, he is a clinical professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., but he calmly accepts a mild decline in his abilities that comes with age. He recalls a book tour dinner many years ago in which he was introduced to a dozen new people. I had no trouble at all remembering the names, he says. I'm not sure I could do that today. Problems recalling names are easily fixable. In any case, Restak tells me, memory is based on images, not words. So I could take your name... Amy Fleming, and see a picture of you in flames, flaming, and so when I next see you, your name will come to me. Memory is also often more about paying attention than cognitive deficits. Returning to Restack's mole analogy, he says, if you've got something more interesting than car park coordinates on your mind when you arrive, you won't pay attention to the seemingly insignificant car park zone and therefore you won't lay down a memory of it. It is much harder to pay attention to things that don't excite us. Signs of a dementia-depleted memory are far more marked, says Linda Clare, Professor of Clinical Psychology of Ageing and Dementia at the University of Exeter. It's a real gap somewhere that there shouldn't be, she says. My own experience of this was telling my mum that I was going to make a big move from Cambridge to North Wales and that I'd found a house, and the next morning she had no recollection of any of it. Then I knew for sure that this wasn't just normal forgetting. Claire recalls another example of a man who got into the car and couldn't remember what the controls were for. It's those crunch moments that send you off to the doctor. But she concedes that it is hard to draw precise markers as circumstances other than dementia can cause dramatic momentary lapses, such as urinary tract infections, hormone imbalances, mini-strokes, depression and anxiety. If you experience a dramatic memory lapse, or cognitive changes that aren't normal for you, the usual investigative pathway would be a visit to a memory clinic via GP referral. We're trying to encourage people, if they do notice a change in functioning, to go to the doctor, says Claire. This is partly because other health problems causing the cognitive symptoms, such as cardiovascular disease affecting blood flow to the brain, could be picked up, but also because drugs can help slow the progression of dementia if taken early. But let's roll back a little. If you're panicking because you're getting older and can't name the actor in the film you've just seen, it's worth diverting this mental energy into positive action. For example, you might want to start by learning new ways to manage stress. Try to decrease stress, and cognitive function will improve. rest says. Claire suggests breaking the vicious cycle of worrying about your health by focusing on taking care of yourself. It's not always easy, she says. Responsibilities don't go away, but is there a way to get a little bit more sleep or have someone give you a break for an hour or two to do something you want to do? Small things that keep you going are worth doing. On the other hand, having a mentally demanding job can be beneficial because it keeps the brain agile and strong and makes a dementia diagnosis less likely. Whatever a person can do to stimulate their mental functioning is a good thing, says Claire. We think complex mental activities are protective. Not that having a mentally taxing job is a prerequisite for brain health. Restak's key phrase for tackling dementia is cognitive reserve, which is something you can build, like a muscle. He says, The brain remains highly malleable throughout the lifespan, and cognitive reserve can be built up from childhood and at any time during the next 70 years. Having a well-exercised brain will not necessarily prevent dementia, but it can keep you functional for longer if you do get the disease. RESTAC's top tip is to find something that viscerally interests you and indulge it like a magnificent obsession. You continue to build on it with books, you go to movies about it, That's the way the mind stays sharp. Keeping your brain doing new stuff, he says, is a way of forming new networks within the brain. This applies to learning new languages, to musical skills, and is also why you should keep up with new technology instead of letting others do it for you. Reading novels is another cognitive reserve-building power move. They demand a lot more in terms of cognitive functioning than a non-fiction book, which you can open up to whatever chapter is of interest to you, says Rastak. You can't do that with a novel. You have to hold in your mind the story so far, who everyone is, follow the text and subtext, and use your imagination. Novels and puzzles require working memory. Working memory is associated with IQ, he says. If you've got a strong working memory, there is not a chance in the world you have dementia. Some of the exercises, he suggests, would strain anybody, he says. The medical definition of dementia is a loss of memory, language, problem-solving and other cognitive abilities that is severe enough to impact daily life. So if you've enough working memory to learn and name, say, or the Prime Ministers since the Second World War, it can be stated categorically that you do not have dementia. Restack says, if you don't follow politics, listing the members of your football team according to position, or alphabetically, would do just as well. Along with reducing stress and keeping mentally agile, sleep, particularly naps, is your memory's friend. Laboratory studies confirm that naps solidify already-learned information, writes Restack. When we first learn something, that knowledge goes into the hippocampus, the brain region responsible for the initial formation of a memory. When we nap, hippocampal activity matches the pattern of activity that occurred when we learned the new information. This is called neural replay. Sleep problems often increase with age, though. Restack says a daytime nap can prove helpful in regulating your nighttime sleep. None of this advice comes with guarantees. You can't take a specific person and predict whether or not they're going to get Alzheimer's on the basis of their lifestyle, says Restac. A high percentage of it is genetic, but these steps will lower the odds. Avoiding drinking to excess is another one, he says. Everybody recognises that alcohol is harmful, but you have to live. If one drink a day causes you to feel better about life, I would say fine. Make up for it, with the other ways of preventing dementia, doing plenty of exercise and sticking to a healthy diet, say. The evidence continues to mount too, for looking after your cardiovascular health and hearing, and for socialising as much as possible. Cheeringly, just as it's never too late to build your cognitive reserve, it's never too late to boost your systemic health. Making changes to benefit your health at any stage has an impact, says Clay. Even if you start exercising when you retire, it will still have a benefit. Do whatever you can do at that time. We're never a lost cause.
0: That was... That's just normal forgetting... The Difference Between Memory Loss and Dementia And How to Protect Your Brain by Amy Fleming Read by Colleen Prendergast That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review or let us know what you want to hear more of. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Colleen Prendergast and Suan Braun, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Nicola Alexandru and Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Brewery. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?